The first thing you notice here, that the great physician gives him a diagnosis. He's a great diagnostician. And secondly, he gives his disappointment, the source of his disappointment. And thirdly, he makes a decision, or give them the opportunity to make a decision. So here you get it, diagnosis, disappointment, and decision. Easy for you to remember, right? All starts with D. Write him down. First thing you notice is uh, our glorified Jesus diagnosis of the condition of the church in Pergamum. Pergamum, it's about a hundred miles from Ephesus and 50 miles from Smyrna. Pergamum was a city that was built 1,000 feet above the plain. That's where the city was built. It contained the second largest library in the world at that time. The first or the largest was the famed Library of Alexandria. In the library of Pergamum, there were 200,000 volumes, handwritten volumes. Above all, Pergamum became the center of emperor worship. Just to give you an idea of the pressure that these believers in Pergamum, the church in Pergamum, were under, in the average region, they were offered a sacrifice to the emperor whom they worshipped, Lord Caesar, once a year. In Pergamum, they were offering daily sacrifice to the emperor. Just understand the pressure. See, without understanding all of this, there's just another letter, and you said, well, you know, our Lord Jesus is just telling them some things. No, no, no. You have to understand that He knows. He knows everything. Imagine with me. Imagine with the incredible pressure, the daily pressure, that these believers were under in this town. And that is why the glorified Jesus said, I know where you live. I know where you live. This is not a threat like sometimes you say, I know where you live. You know. (laughs) No. This is a loving statement. I know where you live, meaning I know your circumstances. I know your constant temptation. I know that Satan is in total control of your city. I know that Satan's headquarters is right next door to where you live. Question. Why? Is Jesus saying this? Because Pergamum was not only the center of emperor worship, but also was the center of the worship of the god Escalepios. He was called the god of healing. Escalepios, of course, is satanic manifestation, was viewed as the son of Apollo, and he was depicted as a snake. As a matter of fact, some pharmaceutical companies use that snake as an emblem. The god Escalapios, represented by a snake, was a constant reminder for them, the believers in Pergamum, of Satan in the Garden of Eden and the temptation. It was constant reminder. In fact, in the temple of Escalapios, they had a bunch of non-poisonous snakes all over the temple. I mean, they were roaming freely, and they would dare not kill it, (laughs) because that's their God. And the poor saps, that's the best way I can describe them. The poor saps traveled from all over the world to come to the temple of Asclepius, 
and they would lie on the ground and hoping that the snake will touch them because they believed that Scalapius himself was touching them, and they believed that's where the healing is. So you got to understand these poor believers in that area. And that is why Jesus called their city where the throne of Satan is. It's the headquarters. And yet, in the middle of trying circumstances, in the middle of these trying situations, the believers continued to hold onto the essence of the gospel. There's some faithful believers in that church who continued to believe that Christ died for their sin and rose again. They continued to hold fast in the name of Christ. They never denied the name of Christ. They never denied the faith altogether, as you see in some of the mainline denominations today. They abandoned the gospel altogether, so much so that one of the church leaders by the name of Antipas was martyred. And Jesus make a reference to him. The faithful believers in that church remained true to Christ in a very difficult circumstance. And that is why the resurrected, glorified Jesus commends them for it. He commends them for it. He praises them for it. He praises them for their faithfulness to the gospel under the most difficult circumstances. Beloved, listen to me. Our God never takes anything we do in His service for granted. Our God always points out to our faithfulness when we are. Which brings me, secondly, to His disappointment with His servants in that church. What is the source of Jesus' disappointment? Very simply put, they were falling in the same trap that many a megachurch in America today is falling into. They were falling in the same trap that so many churches have fallen into. Ooh, we cannot sit in judgment on anyone. We should not be judgmentalists. Oh, we should not judge anybody's sin, even if that sin is so blatant and totally against the Word of God, even if that sin is called by another name, even if that sin is called alternative lifestyle by some members of that church. Now, let me share something with you. Now, I'm coming close now to half a century in ministry, half a century of serving God. What I have learned through these years is that when a pastor or a church leader says, we should not be judgmentals of sin or the sin of others, it is dead giveaway that that person is not judging sin in his or her own life. Whenever they are afraid to call sin, sin, it's because ten out of ten times they have never learned to judge sin in their personal life. Whenever there is a hidden sin, whenever there is an unconfessed sin, whenever there is a cherished sin, whenever there is a rationalized sin or covered up sin, oh, we shouldn't be judging others. It's a cover-up. Judging sin must begin by judging myself. It must begin by judging ourselves first. 
We must begin by examining and judging and confessing and repenting of our own sins in our lives. Only then are we in a position to call sin, sin. In the church of Pergamum, there was tolerance of sexual immorality. Oh, it did not affect the faith of the faithful members of the church. No, it did not affect their loyalty to Christ. It did not affect their belief in Christ. Oh, but the risen, glorified, great physician and his diagnosis said, I have few things against you. What are they? Jesus said, you are winking at sin in your midst. You're winking at it. You're accepting people into membership, even in leadership, who are living in blatant sin. They were knee-deep in sexual immorality, and yet they are serving in the church. Under the guise of being a welcoming church, there's nothing wrong with that, but under the guise of being a welcoming church, they turn a blind eye to some of their membership who turned the grace of God into license. They call it hyper-grace. Jesus does not say that. Jesus does not say. He said, this type of sin that Balaam, in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 22 to 24, Balaam introduced that sin to the people of God. In the same way, in the New Testament, there was a false prophet by the name of Nicholas. He introduced that to the church of Jesus Christ. I'm going to explain all that. Nicholas was one of the seven deacons. Remember, the apostle said, we must give ourselves to preaching of the gospel and and prayer and, and ministering. So they chose seven deacons, wonderful men. The first martyr, Stephen, was one of them. Well, there's always one bad in the bunch. Even Jesus had one out of (laughs) twelve. Nicholas was one of those deacons. Both Balaam in the Old Testament and Nicholas in the New Testament have promoted the same sexual immorality. I know most of you have heard of Balaam's ass. I know you've heard that, and that's why I would say, don't be too stubborn. Don't be too stubborn and be careful because your spiritual stubbornness may make the donkey speak. (laughs) Just let me refresh your memories about Balaam. The people of God were redeemed from the slavery of Egypt, and they were on their way to the promised land. And the king of the Moabites didn't want this to happen. He wanted to stop them from going into the promised land. So what did he do? He looked around, and he found Balaam. Balaam was a prophet for hire. Balaam would do anything and say anything if the price is right. Balaam was a prophet who was available to the highest bidder. And so the king of Moab hires him. God told him not to go, but the money was so good. So he goes along. And then he was asked by king to curse the people of God, to curse them, so they don't go to the promised land. Balaam, he looks at this pile of money on the table, and he says, man, that's a lot of money, even though God has been telling me not to do it. And uh, it's just too much money on the table to leave it there. You've got to do something about it. And God says, don't do it, Balaam. Don't do it, Balaam. And every time the king of Moab 
hears him say, I can't do it, I won't do it, (laughs) he just thinks that this is Balaam's way of being coy and wants more money. And he piles more money on the table, more money on the table. And Balaam wanted to curse him so badly because of the money. But God says, you can't do it. And every time he opens his mouth to curse him, he blesses him. Every time he tried to curse him, he ends up blessing them. Every time he says no, the king of Moab adds a zero to the check. <laughs> and finally, he failed to curse the people of God because God wouldn't let him. Balaam did not want to walk away from that pile of money. I mean, it's just too much money, and it looked so good. So he came up with a diabolical plan, really diabolical. Only the devil himself, Lucifer, who served at the throne room of God before he was thrown out of heaven, would have come up with that plan. And it worked. It worked. Because Balaam knew, like Satan knows, that God is a righteous God, and His righteousness will not allow sin to run rampant in his body, in his church, in his kingdom, the people of Israel at the time. And God's righteous anger, sure enough, burnt against Israel because of that diabolical plan, and the 24,000 men died. What was the plan? Entice them sexually. Entice them sexually. Get some loose Moabite women— <laughs> that would entice the Israelite men, and they will not only commit adultery with them, they will actually bow to their gods. They're going to bow to their idols. And that brought God's judgment on Israel. I told you, diabolical, diabolical. What the false prophet of the Old Testament, Balaam, was to Israel was the false prophet in the New Testament Nicholas brought to the church, and it was running rampant. Question, what was the Lord saying to them, and to us, and to us? Those are so hung up on not being judgmental. Don't judge sexual immorality. Here's what he says, be forewarned. Be forewarned. Can you say that with me? Be when somebody says, I just can't help it, be forewarned. When somebody says, I'm just born that way, be forewarned. When somebody says, I don't have strength to resist, be forewarned. When somebody says, grace will cover it all, send to your heart's content because grace will take care of it. They are bringing Balaam and Nicholas' sin into the church. What Balaam in the Old Testament and Nicholas in the New Testament said is this. Listen carefully. Oh, it's just a little bit of idolatry. Not much. It's just a little bit of adultery. That's not much, but just a little bit. Still love your wives. And you can tell, yeah, I I love you. You, You're my wife. These are girlfriends. They're just, they're not, they don't mean much to me. You know? A little bit of drunkenness goes a long way. Just bow the knee a little bit to Lord Caesar. A little bit of grain of incense is not going to harm anybody. We are free. We are free in Christ. We're not under legalism 
and all this lost stuff in the Old Testament. No, we are free now in the New Testament. Don't be an extremist like that Yusuf guy. I actually heard that with my own ears. <laughs> We're all human? Surely God understands this. He does not expect us to be perfect. Don't be unreasonable. Don't be unreasonable. Well, my beloved friends, Christ happened to disagree with this. He happened to disagree with this false reasoning. False reasoning. In fact, Jesus commended the church of Ephesus for hating the work of these Nicolaites, for not tolerating the sin of Nicholas. He commended the church in Ephesus. He is condemning the church in Pergamum for tolerating it, for tolerating it. So I come to the third, the great physician's verdict or decision. Let me remind you, it's diagnosis, disappointment, decision. Jesus said to them, the only remedy that is acceptable to him, the only remedy that is acceptable to him, the only remedy of any, 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 any sinful behavior, it is not to discuss it, it is not to explain it away, it is not to rationalize it. It must be repented of. And the gracious, merciful King Jesus invites them to repent. Amen. The Lord gracious. Then he gives them a choice. But before they make a choice, he reminds them that choices have consequences. Choices have consequences. Can you say that with me? If they refuse to repent, then the surgeon's couple, the word of his mouth, <laughs> will be penetrating deep into their lives. Because Jesus will not allow falsehood to permeate his bride. Jesus will not allow cancer to infest his body, the church. No wonder the Apostle Paul warns us. He said, don't confuse God's patience with His acquiescence. Because He's so patient, because He wants us to lead us to repentance, don't think that He's winking at you. Don't think He's going to forget about it. So the first choice He gives them is to repent. If they repented, there are two major rewards. The first is the hidden manna, and the second is the white stone. The hidden manna was a reference to the jar of manna that God told them to save when they were supernaturally fed in the wilderness. In fact, the box, which called the Ark of the Covenant, had the staff of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and a jar of the manna. God asked them to do this in order to remind them of His grace of redeeming them from Egypt. Oh, but the real manna, the real manna, the real manna from heaven is Jesus Himself. And He said so in John chapter 6. And so, my beloved friends, listen to me. When we repent and stop rationalizing, we are going to get no less than Jesus. And the white stone is what every winning athlete 
received after a game when they win in the games. And they have a little white stone with their name written on it. And when God had a special calling on someone's life, He changed their name. Abram became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. Jacob became Israel. Simon became Peter. And Saul became Paul. God has a new spiritual name for you when you repent and lean on His strength alone. God has a new identity for every repentant sinner. And that name is engraved on the heart of the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Do you want to give Him glory? If the Holy Spirit has spoken to you today, if the Holy Spirit brought you under conviction today, I know He convicts me on a daily basis. Say, Lord Jesus, I will not rationalize. I will not explain away. I will not make it to be normal. If you call it sin, I call it sin too. I repent. Forgive me. Father, we ask you in the name of Jesus as we look and see the day is drawing nigh. Now prepare and cleanse our hearts to be ready to be with you, to reign and rule with our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would not be ashamed on that last day, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, Bible teacher on Leading the Way. Learn more about the global ministry of Dr. Youssef and Leading the Way by visiting ltw.org. That's ltw.org.